Hello, and welcome to the Early American Brass Band Podcast. I'm Chris Triano, joined always by Stephen Canastrisi. Hello. And this is episode number seven, where we'll be having a conversation with Eric Totman, also known as the Horn Collector. Eric Totman, uh, in addition to being the Horn Collector online, is also the founder of the American Historical Brass Band Society and the E-flat cornet player with the Fort Point Garrison Brass Band in San Francisco, California. So, uh, yeah, Stephen, this talk, like all the other ones, you know, is incredibly enlightening. It was really cool. You know, I thought personally for this one, uh, talking to Eric about the the oddities and the different instrument designs that he has in his own personal collection, I thought it was really interesting. Definitely, yeah. This one is just given the nature of kind of what he does. He's a big collector, obviously. His name is the Horn Collector, or that's <laughs> kind of how he goes online. But um, yeah, so this this is definitely a more instrument centric episode. Um, and definitely one to check out the show notes for, uh, you'll hear in the, in the conversation, we, we get into some oddities, like you said, that, um, I had to look up, uh, I didn't know what they were until <laughs> kind of the, that point in the conversation, I did some quick Googling. So you'll definitely want to check out the show notes for this one, but yeah, really enjoyable conversation. And as always, you know, with these, I, I learned a ton. Yeah, definitely. So just as a reminder, the show notes can be found on our website at www.eabbpodcast.com. Uh, there you'll find the show notes, another way of listening to the episode if you're not there already. You can also find us on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, Google, all the usual podcast streaming platforms. So we hope you enjoy episode number seven featuring Eric Topman. <laughs> Hi, Eric. Thank you so much for coming on to the podcast today. Uh, it's a real honor and a treat and a privilege to have you on. So thank you for taking the time on the Saturday to speak with us. Thank you for the invite. Of course. There's a lot of stuff that we kind of want to get to today over the course of this interview, uh, both related to your uh, instrument collecting as well as your experience playing in uh, the various ensembles that you do. But I guess we can start uh, on the, the earlier side of things and kind of go back a little bit. Do you mind really getting into uh, the instruments that you play, like what you would consider to maybe be your primary instrument? My primary instrument I consider to be a, either E-flat cornet or B-flat trumpet. I play E-flat cornet in a Civil War reenactment band and B-flat trumpet in a another band that I've been playing lead trumpet in about 35 years. Uh, but I do dabble in some other instruments uh, in my collection. I like to pull them out. I do play in a tuba Christmas every year with a with one of my, one of my unusual shaped baritones. <laughs> I feel you like that's I, a that's a theme that keeps on popping up in all these episodes. We always talk about tuba Christmas and how that's an opportunity for the the unusual instruments to come out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a lot of fun. That was one of the first times I saw a serpent was at a tuba Christmas. <laughs> I, I usually take two or three instruments and get a lot of attention because of how un unusual they are. Yeah. yeah. What, what are some of the instruments that you bring to, to tuba Christmas sometimes? Well, um, this last tuba Christmas, I brought one of my double bell euphoniums, which is maybe the first double bell euphonium ever made. Uh, and I brought an Antonio phone and, um, a Lecompte circular baritone oh. shaped in a big, big circular shape. Just yeah. Stuff that people wow. haven't seen before. Was trumpet uh, the instrument that you started on uh, initially? Yeah, I'm, I started in fourth grade. Um, 
my parents borrowed a trumpet and a trombone from some other people, they, some friends of theirs, and uh, they wanted me to try it out. I loved the trombone with the slide and everything. Yeah. Uh, I took both instruments to a private lesson teacher, and he said that I was too short to play the trombone and wanted me to play <laughs> trumpet instead. Um, of course, he was a professional trumpet player. You know, yeah. probably didn't want to teach slide trombone. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so that's, that's kind of where it took off in about fourth grade. Gotcha. So your parents brought home the instruments. Were your parents musicians also? My mother played a little bit of piano when she was younger, but um, they weren't really musicians. Gotcha. So you're one of the, the pioneers in the family getting into the, the music scene. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Did that uh, learning of music in, in grade school transition into attending college or university for music as well? Or, or what happened after high school for you? Yeah, I actually started college as a music major and, uh, you know, I played trumpet throughout my life. And, uh, but after two years, I changed it to physical education because uh, during that era, uh, bands were getting dropped everywhere. It used to be there was, you know, music bands in every elementary school, intermediate school, high school. Yeah. Um, but things were getting cut out at that time. And the guy that was giving my uh, private lessons at the time was, kind of discouraging me to go and become an educator. You know, he said that uh, the baby boomer generation ahead of you, they're not going to retire until I was you know, 40 years old or, you know, yeah, so he yeah. said, there's not much work out there for you. So I switched to physical education at that point. So was physical education something that you had an interest with as well, like in high school, or was that something that developed once you were in college? Yeah, I was a, a, a gymnast throughout high school and into college. Went to Sacramento State University in California and uh, was on the gym, college gymnastics team there. And so I figured there'd always be physical education jobs out there. There you go. And, and then that's been your career since college, right? Yeah, coaching men's gymnastics at private clubs, um, 37 year career doing Very so. Very cool. That's awesome. That's really interesting. Have you, have you seen that there's any connection between gymnastics and music like i know that there's a, a big push in sports psychology being applied to music like obviously there's the inner game of tennis that's been applied to to music and i recently read a book by uh bernie williams from the new york yankees where he's a, a latin jazz guitarist now and his book is all about applying being a center fielder for baseball to music as well so i'm curious are you finding any connections there yourself <laughs> Um, the only connection I really see is you have to have dedication, you know, like, like in music, you have to be dedicated and you have to have desire. Desire is something that you can't teach someone, you know, and so you have to have that. But in both as a gymnast, you know, uh, gymnasts that, I, that I was coaching were training three and a half hours a day, five to six days a week, year round, uh, at, starting at like age 10. So you have to be very dedicated to it and just like music too if you're gonna yeah. do well you have to yeah, practice yeah. practice 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 <laughs> yeah i was gonna say that that regiment sounds very familiar for sure yeah <laughs> as yeah, yeah. <laughs> i think that that kind of mental you know discipline connection is the strongest one uh, probably between sports and and music so eric you have amassed a very large collection of musical instruments um when did you start collecting them and kind of how did you get into that world? I have to say the starting point would have been in high school. I had several instruments, piccolo trumpet, trumpet, you know, flugelhorn, 
that I used in jazz ensemble and, and symphonic band. Um, but uh, I think it was the summer of when I was in um, junior, I know, say, I was a junior in high school, took a summer repair class, and mm. we all had to pick a beat up instrument to repair. And I picked an, an 1892 Kong uh, baritone to repair, and it was in pieces. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and I, I put it all back together again, and the instructor was so impressed, he actually gave me the instrument. Oh, wow. Um, oh, wow. He did to keep. And uh, I was the only person in the class that actually got to take home an instrument. Mm -hmm. uh, but he thought, probably thought that 1892, you know, coming out of a school district is something, not something that, you know, most schools would want. But then made me start looking, you know, in pawn stores and flea markets and stuff and started, you know, collecting more and more instruments. But it wasn't until I discovered eBay. Yeah. <laughs> eBay started in uh, 1995 and I got on it early in 1996. Mm -hmm. And uh, my collection just expanded after that point. Do you remember what the first instrument you bought on eBay was? Or, or what do you consider to kind of be like your first historical instrument that, that you would, you know, say, this is the first one that I'd put in the collection? The first historical one I would have to say is that Kahn uh, Baritone, mm -hmm. 1892. Yeah. Um, you know, when I got on eBay, things that I don't think are desirable now, at, the, at that time I thought were pretty interesting. Like, you know, I hadn't seen some of the, uh, marching bugles. I thought, well, that's cool. I haven't seen that before, and you know, bought it, and you know, old old cornets. Um, and uh, uh, my wife at that time didn't allow me to use any of my regular income to buy the collection. So what I would do is I'd buy instruments that are beat up, fairly cheap, do my own repair work on them, take photographs of them, sell them, you know, mm -hmm. make a little bit of money, reinvest that money to buy more expensive horns. You know, so I went from buying horns to you know, seventy five dollars to thousands of dollars <laughs> over yeah, time yeah. and my whole built collection has been built up um from buying selling and trading yeah i'm sure that those repair chops kind of come in handy now you know with some reenactment stuff i'm sure instruments yeah, that age kind of break down over time and it's helpful to have that a little bit of that background to fix them yeah i do some basic repairs the, the more difficult stuff of course i send to uh, there's a few uh right. throughout the country that send there stuff to especially on real historic instruments right that's if i didn't touch them <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah do you still have that 1892 baritone in your collection no i sold it years ago uh, uh you know a lot of my collection i don't intend to sell like especially really collectible ones but then something will come up some a, a big dollar item and then i look at my collection going okay what can i sell now uh, yeah, um, yeah, so yeah. there's been a lot of instruments that i never intended to to, to sell mm -hmm. but when something bigger and better comes along that's my resource to for funds to do so right mm -hmm. do you have a ballpark or maybe maybe you have a specific number do you know where in terms of quantity your collection sits right now yeah i, I just took a look at it it's about a 280 instruments wow. wow and those are all brass or does that trickle into some other families as well um it's all uh, brass wind instruments i do have a, a collection of uh, drums too civil war era drums and actually oh. pre-civil war drums mainly purchase those to highlight along with my collection you know mm -hmm. and, and use in reenactment bands gotcha so you would definitely say your focus is on brass instruments of that era yes brass instruments of that era uh you know my my collection in the beginning uh was very diverse 
mm -hmm. unusual stuff. And it's really narrowed down to instruments, I'd say, from 1830 through uh, 1900, with, mo with most of them being in the Civil War in 1870. You know, 1870s, it, it was, a, was a great era for design of, you know, unusual instruments. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, for sure. You were mentioning that you occasionally have instruments that you would like to sell to be able to acquire new instruments that, that you're interested in. I know a lot of people within the community are familiar with you as the horn collector. You have a website and there's a, a Facebook group and everything. And I often have discussions with people, those discussions usually involving people drooling over some of the, the oddities <laughs> that, that you have for sale on there. And then even just on your regular website, you in the not for sale section, you know, you have pictures of a lot of your instruments too, and people use that as a resource and a really, you know, fun way to, to pass time, especially now that we're all locked in our houses <laughs> and stuff. What was yeah. that, was that website and that, that horn collector name, something that you set out to create or did that kind of just come to be as you were collecting all these instruments? Well, that name was my, my eBay name, horn collector. And then probably a year after I got on eBay, I, I started uh, my horn collector website. Uh, originally, I, I developed it in a Microsoft program called Front Page, and it was quite extensive with hundreds of horns. And you, you could click on a horn, and it would go to a dozen photos of each horn, what great detail. But then Microsoft stopped supporting uh, Front Page around 2007, so all that work was lost. So I started a new website and unfortunately I really haven't spent much time on it, got my hands in too many other projects. And so I'm kind of disappointed, I, you know, and discouraged that uh, it's not the website that it used to be. Mm -hmm. So I spend most of my time on, on other websites and, and uh, my web store. Hopefully someday, or, you know, who knows, maybe it'll, it'll return to its former glory and get yeah. to, to share some of that stuff with everybody else. Because like I said, what, what is currently up there is incredibly interesting to, to browse and see that you have a part of that collection. You mentioned towards uh, the beginning of the interview, you're kind of throwing out a, a few names of different types of instruments that I know a lot of listeners are not going to be familiar with. Uh, well, in our show notes on the website, you know, include some definitions and pictures of some of the instruments uh, that we're talking about. But is, are there any in, uh, families of instruments or particular instruments in your collection that you're particularly proud of having? Yeah. Um, the highlight of my collection has to be my Schreiber collection. Louis Schreiber was, was an instrument maker uh, from, in the, from about 1866, and then he went bankrupt in 1869. So there's only like a three-year period where he made instruments. Uh, and lost everything, but the design is is very unusual. It's an over-the-shoulder instrument, but the bell curves upward. And uh, I have the largest collection of, of voices and Schreiber instruments known to exist. And uh, within this project, I've actually started the first first book ever written on Louis Schreiber. And a couple of years ago, I did a presentation in in Boston on on him. But interesting fellow. Um, he, he started off, he came from Germany and uh, was in the uh, lead trumpet player for the New York Philharmonic. I'm not sure how he got into instrument making, but, but he did. Um, a very elaborate design. And I'm sure that the, the manual labor that it took to build those instruments, are, it's got all kinds of curves in it. Uh, 
uh, you know, just wasn't very profitable. You know, yeah, to, I think aren't aren't those instruments sometimes referred to as like S horns or serpent horns or something like that? It's called a teardrop design. Teardrop. Mm -hmm. Teardrop is is uh, he's the only one that has that design. It's a mm -hmm. very distinct design. Um, there's only I've only documented uh, 33 Schreiber instruments known to exist, and I've got six in my collection. I've got a, a two B flat sopranos. I've got an E flat alto, B flat tenor, B flat baritone, and E flat bass. Wow. Yeah, we'll we'll be sure to include a picture, a few on our show notes, so that people can get an idea of uh, what these things look like. And yeah, awesome. I mean they're they're be almost you know works of art. You know, in addition to to being you know functional instruments, they're really really beautiful horns. I think. Yes, and that's one thing that attracts me to instruments during that era is everybody was trying to come out with a different design and you know be different than everybody else. And Schreiber Schreiber did so, but went bankrupt very quickly. <laughs> now, were those instruments manufactured in the United States or were those imported? Yes, yes. He made them in New York. He had a factory in New York. Since there is no book written on Louis Schreiber, it's been a lot of work digging up information on him. He, you know, he was around for such a short amount of period of time. Um, you know, I'm having to go back through old newspaper articles to get to dig up any information I can, you know, resource other books because there are no other books. Yeah. I'm a very interesting guy, and I think it's worth documenting for historical purposes, you know, his life as, as a musician and also as, as an instrument maker. Were his designs a, a direct response or direct competition to the other uh, Dodworth over-the-shoulder design? I think what, what happened um, was a lot of makers were coming up with uh, marching instruments, preparing for the... 1876 centennial for the United States. And uh, so there were some, some unique designs that came out during that time. And uh, this made sense in that this that with the bells over the shoulder yet pointing up, uh, the sound would be projected in all directions instead so, of the old you know, the regular over the shoulder where it sounds all one behind you. So it's almost like a hybrid between a, a concert instrument and the, the marching over the shoulder instruments then for mm -hmm. the purpose of... Uh sound dispersion right? yeah correct uh, henry leonard came out with an instrument for the in fact his model is called the centennial that's all that wraps around your your body and the bells goes forward it's called a toilet seat design <laughs> um, but he, he did it specifically for the 1876 american centennial yeah i i know a lot of people are have maybe seen the instruments you know in passing and yeah it'll be really interesting for everybody to, to learn more about those instruments. Do you know, or do you have a target for when uh, you might aim to complete your book and have it available? No. Not to put, not to put you on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> now I've, I've been working on it for years now and uh, I should have finished the book after my presentation in Boston. I mean, because what happens is it gets put on the back burner and then it's hard to get started again, you know, figure out where you leave off. And one thing that's taken me so long is uh, there's still so many unanswered questions, but I, I do kind of need to write the book and then I can always publish updates as, as I, you know, uncover more information about Lewis Schreiber. Yeah, definitely. Sure. And digging through those primary sources is a, is a long process, <laughs> you know, finding them and sifting through to find what's relevant. It's And especially when you find a couple different, uh, resources that are that conflict 
and you're trying to decide, well, which which was true, this one or that one. And you know, as a writer, I guess I could present both cases and let the reader make up their mind. Right. Yeah, yeah, more of a presentation as opposed to trying to have a stance or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, really interesting. Well, make sure you let us know whenever that does happen to get completed. We'll be happy to promote that on here for you as well. It'll be a, yeah. a great resource for everybody for sure. If we're comparing Schreiber instruments to a form of over-the-shoulder instruments, I'm assuming you have some over-the-shoulder horns in your collection as well? Yeah, I've got a complete set of uh, Stratton over-the-shoulder instruments. Uh, two E-flat sopranos, B-flat soprano, E-flat alto, uh, B-flat tenor, B-flat baritone, and then the E-flat bass. I've been collecting over-the-shoulder instruments for a while, and, and then at some point I had like three Stratton instruments, and, and so I just targeted getting Stratton. I, I tend to like I'm moving more toward complete collections of the particular maker. Would you agree with the sentiment that B-flat soprano over-the-shoulder horns are more of the more difficult over-the-shoulders to find? Um, they're a little more difficult to find than E-flat flat sopranos, even though I do have three B-flat over-the-shoulders in mm. my collection. I, I heard that it was common for B-flat over-the-shoulders to get converted to bell front, and that's a partially a reason why those instruments can sometimes be difficult to find as period instruments. Yeah, I actually had one that had been converted to bell forward and then i had it reconverted to over the shoulder again there you go <laughs> back to its original glory yeah <laughs> the way the way it was meant to be <laughs> is our stratton's the only over the shoulders that you have or do you have a few outlayer over the shoulders also um i've got a couple others one of my b flats is a berliner valve uh b flat and uh it's currently up for sale on one of my websites mm-hmm. yeah i've seen it <laughs> <laughs> yeah. who knows maybe after this episode your your store will get wiped clean with people <laughs> seeing this who knows uh yeah that's awesome um before the interview when we had been corresponding you also mentioned that another area of your uh collection are Besson cornophones i had to look up what that was <laughs> can you and it, which i'm assuming then the majority of the audience would have to do the same can you kind of explain uh, what that instrument is and uh, why that is one that caught your eye? Yeah, um, Besson made uh, this instrument, which he called a cornophone, and, and he did it in the 1890s. It's a bit difficult to, to describe, but um, the lead pipe comes out a few inches, then it goes vertically down and then back toward the musician, and the bell is forward. So it's it's very compact and very, um, instead of most... You know, it's, instruments are all going forward. Uh, the bell does go go forward, but uh, it's it's very um, conical in shape. One thing that's interesting about Besson cornophones is they all take the same mouthpiece, which is like a French horn mouthpiece. Hmm. So I, in my Besson cornophone collection, I have an uh, E flat. I'm, I'm sorry, a B flat soprano, an E flat alto, and uh, E flat uh, baritone. And I'm hoping to someday pick up the rest of the collection, but um, uh, there are very few cornerphones out there. In fact, in, in the B-flat soprano, I would only know two to exist, um, and I've got one of them. There's kind of an interesting story behind my, um, my B-flat uh, soprano cornerphone. Uh, it was once owned by Eldon Bench, and uh, I 
bought it from on eBay from a tr professional trumpet player called um, Louise Berenger. And um, she picked it up from a guy she had met called uh, Joel Duro, who was a good friend uh, of Eldon. And apparently, as the story goes, uh, Joel would visit uh, Eldon Benj and hanging on the wall was this B-flat cornophone and Joel always admired it and liked it. And one day Eldon just gave it to, to Joel. Mm -hmm. And then uh, Luis did the same thing with, with Joel, admired it for, for many years. And then when uh, Joel turned to 95, he handed it over to, to Luis for free. Wow. And then I ended up paying big bucks for it on eBay. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So then, I'm still trying to, to wrap my head around the, the design of it. And again, we'll include pictures and stuff online. Right. But um, about how far downward does the instrument extend, like beyond like what's normal that we'd be familiar with for like a regular trumpet or cornet? It's kind of hard to de describe it and compare it to other instruments because there's no other ones of this design. Um, but it depends, obviously, on which, which voice, the soprano, you know, goes vertically down and curves back up. Um, the bell of the instrument is about perhaps six inches away from the player's face. So oh, wow. if you can yeah, super imagine complex. that most of the instrument is going down and there you back go. up. So you've got the mouthpiece, the vowel section, and then the bell. Gotcha. The so it's like the, a, the size of like a pocket instrument, but the, the rest of the, the tubing kind of just yeah. <laughs> falls yeah. And, down. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure all the voices. I know that there is a contra bass. Um, <laughs> Uh, the, the one that I, the, the baritone voice that I have says bass on it. And so I'm, I'm, I've only seen photos of a contra bass. I've never seen one up, come up for, for sale. And I don't know of a collection that has one, but yeah, uh, yeah. It, it is out there. And hopefully I'll finish that set someday. Yeah. Really interesting. If now this is all hypothetical, if you were to have, you know, let's take the, the cornophone collection, for example, if you were to have every voice that you know to exist, but you know that one existed or does exist, and it's just basically impossible to get, would you uh, commission an, an instrument maker to, to fill out that voice, or are you pure period and it has to be original or nothing? Well, um, I'm glad you said that, because actually that happened with my Schreiber collection. Oh, wow. Every voice except for the E flat soprano. Hmm. And um, I wanted to be able to play these instruments occasionally in a band. They're very unique. And I, I did so last summer uh, in a gig in New York. And we can talk about that uh, later. But hmm. um, so I had a, a Rob Stewart, who's an instrument collector and, and um, maker, hmm. uh, make one for me. An E flat uh, soprano. There, I know of a couple that exist out there, but the owners don't want to sell them. Maybe someday, but no, yeah, that's really <laughs> interesting that that you have already had the 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 family fulfilled by doing a modern commission. That's awesome. That's really cool. Yeah. yeah. So you mentioned earlier um, about perhaps the first double bell uh, instrument that you have. Can you do you mind talking about that horn in particular? Yeah. Um, C.G. Kahn was the first maker to make double bell euphoniums, and he, he uh, made the first one in 1887. My, the serial number on my double bell euphonium it is dated 1887, and there are no 
double Bellevue phonium I know of with a lower serial number. And what makes this one particularly interesting, if it, you know, perhaps it's not the first, but it's definitely one of the, the first. And, and the reason is, is because uh, as you probably know, a double bell euphonium is basically a baritone voice and a tenor, two horns wrapped in one. Mm -hmm. They've got their own sets of tuning slides, you know, and uh, and you can have to tune each together. They each have their, each, the baritone has a tuning slide and, and same with the tenor voice and you uh, tune them together. Well, this one only has one tuning slide for both voices. Hmm. Um, so it doesn't quite play in tune with each other. When, when you switch over from the baritone bell to the tenor, it's a little off key. And mm -hmm. it's probably something they discovered, discovered early on that they needed to have uh, the main tuning slide, a separate one from the tenor voice and the baritone voice. And there are, are no other double bell euphoniums that, that exist that have just the one, at least none that I know of and I know of a, a lot, mm -hmm. that just have the one tuning slide. So that, brings me to the conclusion that uh, if this is not the first, it's one of the first little bell euphoniums made. Well, it uh, sounds like you've got a pretty strong case there. Yeah, <laughs> going sure. through for that. Yeah, that's, that's, that's amazing. When I, did you... I, owned, I, I was just going to say, I, I've owned uh, over 60 double bell euphoniums over the years. Mm -hmm. and so I've seen a lot. I um, have a pretty, pretty good idea of, uh, you know, what's, what's out there. And I, I, I'm also... In, uh, direct contact with a lot of other collectors too. Wow. Do you remember what year you got that double bell that you're talking about? It was probably uh, uh, 2018. I've only had oh. it for a couple of years. Okay. Was that an eBay wow. one? It, yeah, it, it was an eBay purchase and um, it looks, you know, pretty worn and beat up and I got it at a fairly good price because I don't think anybody else recognized what it was or, or, you know, looked at the date and realized that's probably the earliest known yeah. double bell euphonium out there. Is that yeah. in playing condition right now or is it not really? Yes. In fact, I took it to a, to the Christmas last year. Oh, that's right. Yeah. You mentioned that. Yeah. That's awesome. Really well, I guess cool. those are the, those are the perks of really knowing your stuff. You're able to spot stuff like that when it pops up on the internet and, and snag it before anybody else. That's awesome. Yeah. Are there any other instruments uh, in your collection? Oh, obviously you said that you had a few hundred, but, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> anything else? that uh, you kind of wanted to highlight here while we're still talking about uh, your collection specifically? Yeah, um, you know, as long as we're talking about double bell euphoniums, I have two double bell alto horns. Um, oh, wow. There's only six known to exist, and I've got two of them. Um, five of the ones known to exist are all four valve. You've got the your three valves, then you've got the fourth one to switch for, between bells. And I actually have the only one known that has five valves. So five valve double bell alto. So is that an alto and soprano then? It, it's a, no, it, no, it's actually two alto voices. Um, they're all, now why they did that? <laughs> yeah, I'm <I> guess. <laughs> um, is it one it, enough? No, I can't. <laughs> one of the ones I have, the four valve one, one bell points up and the other bell points forward. Uh, and they're both E flat altos. So that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, but then my five valve, both bells curve forward and they're both alto voices. Um, I was gonna say, if they're, if they're the same voice, at least the bell up and the bell forward like kind of justifies having two of them, but then to have the same voice with both bells pointing forward, 
that that seems extra redundant. <laughs> yeah, and you know, obviously, very few were made. I, you know, I'm I've been trying to think why they they made them, and they they were they were made. Most of them are made in the early 1900s. You know, I think one of mine stated in 1912, and it was 1914. Interesting. Was there ever? You know, obviously, it cost a lot of money to make instruments, but to your knowledge, were there instrument manufacturers that were making instruments? for the shock value or to be interesting? Or do you think every design was their attempt at making the next practical instrument? I think during the 1860s, especially during the 1870s, they were really trying to come out with something different than everybody else, different in looks, different in design, you know, something the newest, the best, mm -hmm. you know, and they, they, you know, tried to advertise that way. I think what they ran into is the labor cost of all the, all the bends in these, you know, instruments, you know, the instrument starts out as a flat piece of metal, <laughs> you know, and then they've got to make it into a tube and then they've got to fill the tube with resin. They've got to bend the resin, you know, so once instruments, you know, were, were mass produced in an assembly line like by Kahn, price wise, they just couldn't compete, you know, with these instrument makers who were trying to come up with these unusual stuff. Mm -hmm. Is, are there uh, any other instruments besides the the, the redundant alto horn? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I've got a few others that I listed that, that are of interest. Yeah, I've got sure. I've got a, an over-the-shoulder slide trombone. It was made by Gouchard, uh, who was in business in France between 1827 through 1845. You may see an early drawing or illustration of the 1840s or 1850s band with it showing over the shoulder slide trombones. Hmm. Um, I know of no other one. I'm sure there might be some out there, but I don't know of any other one. And this actually comes with its original case. Oh, so wow. It's extremely rare. One reason why I picked it up is I try to, I'm trying to put enough instruments together so I can do an 1845 band, you know, with my nice. key bugles, Ophiclide, and mm -hmm. now uh, over the shoulder slide trombone. <laughs> yeah. Well, do you have any of those keyed brasses in your collection currently? Yes, I've got I've got one Ophiclide, and I've got uh, five keyed bugles. Um, probably the the highlight of my keyed bugles. Um, well, I do have a, a Graves keyed bugle. Oh, nice. Graves was in business from eighteen thirty through eighteen fifty, but I've also got a nice set of Firth, Hull, and Pond keyed bugles, a B flat and an E flat keyed bugle. Uh, Hall, Firth, and Pond were in business together from 1833 through 1847. I know the the graves are often kind of considered to be one of the the most sought after keyed bugles. Are the yes. are the Firth, Hall, and Pond kind of up in that region also, or yes, they actually all did well independently as as makers, but they are all kind of in that 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 same same range. Yeah, graves. Graves is highly sought out after. Um, kind of interesting story about the one I bought. I bought it on eBay again, um, and it was a lamp. Yeah, <laughs> so I see, had, see those occasionally. That's unfortunate. Oh gosh, someone had made it into a lamp, so I had it fully restored by Rob Stewart yeah. um, because it makes, it's you know, it's worth it. Yeah, it. Makes you wonder how many incredibly rare, expensive instruments are hanging on walls in like Applebee's and Chili's and stuff. <laughs> My uh, <laughs> my my Schreiber E flat alto horn was once a bar decoration 
it was spray painted black and the valves were bent so it could be attached to a wall. Makes you think of Cracker Barrel and you look at some like the old tools on the Cracker Barrel wall and oh, wonder yeah. if they were ever like, you know, if they dug them up in the field where they built the Cracker Barrel. Yeah. That <laughs> <laughs> yeah. was probably, you know, we're, we're talking about it with instruments, but yeah, you bring up a good point with like tools, you know, I'm sure that there's a early American tools podcast and they're, they're having the same discussion <laughs> that we are. Yeah. Uh, they have no idea what they have. Kind of <laughs> exactly. Awesome. Oh, that's uh, really interesting. Another interesting uh, instrument that I have, I've got a couple Antonio phones. Hmm. Uh, one of them is a B flat baritone and the other is an E flat alto. Um, the Antonio phone was made by Anton Courtois. And um, it was made in the 1870s, 1880s. Um, if you've never seen one, they look like a big dollar sign. And that's for hmm. a reason, I think. <laughs> How would that compare to a, the Schreiber phone then? Well, the, the instrument comes from the mouthpiece. It comes out from the instrument, away from the musician, curves back toward the musician, and then it curves back upward. Like I said, like a big dollar sign. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, yeah. I, I just Googled it because I had no idea. And it, it looks like, you know, the bell kind of if you were holding it in front of you, the, the bell would be kind of at stomach level and curve up as opposed right. to the to the cornophone, which the bell ends up kind of in line with the mouthpiece. But like yeah. I said, like uh -huh. we said, we'll have pictures of all these. These are these are wild to look at. I had no idea these existed. Is that almost like <laughs> a like a serpent being held out away from you? Almost. Yes. Yeah. Instead of a serpent goes sideways. Yeah. Turn it forward, uh, pointing forward. That's that's basically the design design of it. Yep, and then you've got kind of looks like that that standard three valve valve section up there, kind of in line with with your eyeballs. Yeah, pretty neat looking. Yeah, and very few are known to exist. It you always have... attracts attention at that tube of Christmas. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah, that's really cool. Nice. You mentioned earlier that you had played your Schreiber collection at a, at a gig in New York. Is that a Civil War reenacting gig? Or, and if so, can I, how did you get into that world? I mean, I mean I'm assuming there's a lot of crossover with the, the date of your collection. Um, so it might be a logical thing, but if you wouldn't mind explaining kind of how you got active in that circle. Yeah. Um, in my Schreiber research, I learned that there is a uh, town in Copenhagen, New York, mm -hmm. um, that had a band that played Schreiber instruments, and they still currently have the original bandwagon. And so I contacted them about a year and a half ago in regards to, hey, if I'm ever in the area, I'd love to, you know, bring my instruments with me and get on the bandwagon, literally. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, I have a photo of, of musicians holding these horns. And they said, oh, i would you mind putting together a band for our 150th anniversary celebration, which took place this last summer? Hmm. And so I said, sure. And uh, so I put together, together a band gig um, with primary New, New York musicians that I have a contact with. The name of the, the band in Copenhagen, New York is called uh, the Raymond Coronet Band. It was their 150th anniversary of the forming of, of Copenhagen. And the band was formed at, at, at that point in time, and they had a full set of Schreiber instruments. In fact, in my documentation of bands that had Schreiber instruments, uh, the 
Raymond Coronet Band is listed, you know, within that. So it was it was a fun gig. We played in a bandstand. The band that I brought in for that gig is uh, the Excelsior Coronet Band, led by Jeff Stockham, who's mm -hmm. a professional trumpet player in, from New York, mm -hmm. Syracuse, New York, and uh, he helped me get some musicians together, and it was great. I actually owned the original bass drum that fit on that bandwagon. Mm -hmm. um, I picked that up along the way in, in my research. And so I brought that bass drum with me and uh, Copenhagen ended up buying the drum. It, it belonged on the bandwagon. It's, it was pretty cool, but on the bandwagon, uh, there was actually a saddle for that drum. Oh, so, yeah. it, so it's back home where it belongs. How do you know that it was that drum? Was it still hand painted or how were you able to make that connection? Um, the band's logo is painted on, on the drum itself. And there's photos of the band in and uh, that drum and on that wagon. Right. And I actually have uh, photos that were taken in 1869 of each individual musician holding Schreiber instruments. Wow. That's why that's where the connection came um, of this band with all Schreiber instruments. It, it's, it's one of those reenactments that's a once in a lifetime thing. I mean, it's fun to do reenactments, but to get this specific, you know, reenacting this band with their original drum on their bandwagon, all with Schreiber instruments was just very unusual and, and uh, neat thing. We actually, I actually found uh, Raymond's tombstone. And so we uh, took the band over there and played a few tunes for Raymond on his nice. tombstone. Yeah, that's really special. That's awesome. Yeah, that's awesome that you were able to kind of bring that piece of history back where it belonged and, you know, literally put it back on the wagon that that's fantastic yeah yeah and that might kind of lead to my american historical brass band society website that i started mm -hmm. um since i did that new york gig another opportunity came up was uh, presented to me um in april 4th it was golden gate park in san francisco their 150th anniversary and they asked me to put a band together and i started realizing that we're coming up on a lot of 150th anniversaries all across the country. Mm -hmm. And um, there are a lot of civil war bands out there, but they are um, not a whole lot that play beyond the civil war. And I think that it was a real golden era post-civil war in the 1870s for, for brass bands. And so um, I've purchased uh, pillbox caps, you know, for, for musicians to wear and, um, looking for opportunities um, as with our band that I, I play in the Fort Point Garrison Brass Band. Um, oftentimes we can't do gigs because we don't have enough musicians. Mm -hmm. I'm the only E-flat cornet player. So if I can't make a gig, it's hard for the rest of the band to, to make it. And it's even more difficult, I think, for these 1870 gigs that I'm trying to, to find. Um, so I developed the American Historical Brass Band Society, trying to bring in musicians from different bands for potential opportunities that might come up, whether it's for an 150th anniversary or perhaps there may be a movie that's made in the 1840s or 1870s that's looking for a brass band specifically using instruments from that time period. Um, I was actually, uh, my instruments were actually used in an HBO gig, episode six of uh, family tree. Uh, the main character did some civil war reenacting and they needed a, a, 
a band with over-the-shoulder instruments. Wow. So I think there might be more opportunities like that out there, but it might be hard to do in, in a smaller individual band. So bringing bands together is kind of the goal behind that website project that I've started. Yeah. About, about how many bands do you have cataloged with that? You know, since I just started it, um, you know, a couple months ago, I've got 12 musicians who are mem members and they belong in three different bands. So it's a starting point. And then of course, right now, the San Francisco gig got canceled because mm -hmm. of the coronavirus and other gigs, you know, aren't, aren't happening. So it's, it's hard for me to get this off the ground, but I'm hoping over time that I can get other bands and other musicians signing up. I, I on the website, I, I want to post photos of vintage brass bands. I have, besides my horn collection, I have several hundred photos of vintage brass bands, hmm. town bands and all kinds of things. And, and uh, just, even here in California, I was going to contact the cities of those bands and see if they have an event because I can reproduce that band reenactment in that particular city. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah it might be kind of fun and, and, you know, once again, make it a good resource for vintage brass bands. I want to try to get my photos all up there and then invite others to put photos up too. For sure. Um, but have that along with the potential of, you know, doing reenactments of those bands, you know, with period correct instruments. Yeah. 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 That's awesome. That's a, a great resource for, for everybody out there. It's a really great idea, you know, kind of bringing, trying to bring the community to get together and do more varied kinds of things. I, I think that's great. Yeah. And I, I think a lot of bands may be in the same situation as, as us. Like, you know, if we have one B flat bass player, you know, if, if he, can't make the gig, then we can't do the gig. And, you know, yeah. just try to open up opportunities for bands to work with each other. You know, they can do their own individual thing, but there might be special events that come up like the Copenhagen gig that I did or the San Francisco gig, mm -hmm. you know, where I can invite other musicians from across the country to come join in. And um, I'm actually going to be doing next year, uh, next June, I'm putting a, bit, a band together to perform on the bandstand in Golden Gate Park. There's a big half shell concrete bandstand there. And so I'm working on putting that together for next year. Very cool. Great. Yeah, that sounds fantastic. It, it's a big, it's right in line with what Steven and I are trying to do with this podcast also. You know, we've, uh, since we've been kind of on the scene, exactly what you're saying, trying to build this community and connect everybody is a major goal that we have with this podcast so we're looking forward to being in touch with you you know going forward and hopefully we can all make that a reality and and bring everybody together for sure yeah that's great was reenacting a hobby that you had that was initially separate from music making or did you get into uh performing in a civil war brass band at the same time as reenacting? Like how did that all come together for you personally? Yeah, I, I kind of have to talk about Fort Point Garrison Brass Band to, to link myself into that. Of course. Um, and I'll start by saying uh, those that don't know what Fort Point is, it's, it's a Civil War fort that's located underneath the south side of the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco. And uh, during the Civil War, there were three forts, uh, one there at Fort Point, then out, Alcatraz Island was originally a Civil War fort. And then uh, across the bay on the other side of the, the mouth of the 
San Francisco Bay is, uh, there was a Civil War fort on Angel Island. Okay. And the three forts were there to protect all the gold that had been coming out of uh, during the gold rush. And, uh, you know, people usually don't think of California when they think of the Civil War, <laughs> but it actually played a very important role in that it funded the, the Union Army and with all the gold that was coming out. So um, anyway, there's a fort point there and the, the fort point brass band was actually originated by a group of reenactors, Civil War reenactors who were sitting around a campfire at a reenactment, you know, and, and discussing how they played instruments back in high school and it'd be great to have some sort of brass band. And they I, I, apparently they originally gathered in 2005 and then wanted to start, start a brass band. They found me because of my collection. They were looking for an E-flat cornet player. And, uh, and so I figured that, you know, I might as well use my collection, you know, I had never really played my E-flat cornet, even though I had had several, I just didn't have any opportunity. And so I thought it was a great opportunity for me to start playing it. And that's how I got into reenacting. So it was kind of more coincidental, right? That you already had all the instruments from that time period. And then the opportunity kind of presented itself for you to get a little bit more hands-on with your collection. <laughs> yes, definitely. And, you know, over the years, um, it's important for me to be very authentic. And so um, over the years, I've sold instruments to the musicians. So we all play period instruments and, you know, we play period music. In other words, if we're in a reenactment that took place in 1863, we don't play music that was written in 1864. Yeah, we're, we're very authentic, even though most people would not know the difference. It, it is important to us to be as authentic as possible. Now, is that knowledge that you have in, in terms of, uh, music dates and reenactment dates? Actually, one of our band founding band members, um, Marty Sampson is a music teacher and she's been in reacting and she's kind of our historian. And so she's the one that really has a good hold on the period music when it was written. She does all the research and, and helps put our band book together. Nice. Now you mentioned you're, you're obviously playing on, on period horns. Are you also playing on period mouthpieces? That's something that's come up in, in quite a few interviews that we've done for this podcast that some people are, you know, really in on playing on the period mouthpieces and some people are, are less in on that and play on modern mouthpieces just to make it a little easier on themselves. Yeah, I, I play um, on a period mouthpiece. Okay. Only. It took me a long time to get used to it and my ability and range aren't the same on a period mouthpiece as it would be on a more modern mouthpiece. But, right. um, you know, I think it was Jeff Stockholm that actually convinced me that, you know, you want that authentic sound, you know, it's going to sound different using a, you know, and if you're trying to portray a music as it would have been heard, you know, using a period in instrument, you got to, the mouthpiece has to be period, you know, correct. Right. And, you know, and we, our band also does gold rush era gigs up in the Sierra foothills, 1850s gigs. And so up there, I usually bring my key bugle, which would have been a popular instrument. For those different California gold rush gigs and uh, the Civil War gigs, do you guys have different uniforms that you guys use for those? Yes, um, we have, uh, we play a typical town band, 1850s town band, which is a completely different uniform, you know, than our Civil War uh, uniform. Um, mm -hmm. When we do Civil War gigs, we have both Confederate and Union 
Gotcha. So um, you guys have about three one, different uniforms that you're able to cycle between? Yes. Very cool. That's, and are those all owned by each member or is that like an organization that owns all those? No, um, every individual owns their own stuff. Gotcha. And um, we also have the extras. So if we're bringing someone new, trying to get someone new on the band, we can supply them with the instruments and, and uniform parts. About how big is the the, uh, the band on average? How many pieces do you have? There's nine of us. And um, we've been trying to grow, but it's 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 difficult yeah. to, to grow our band. Yeah, you were mentioning how it's hard to find the musicians in that area and part of why you formed the, the society, right, was to, to find more <laughs> players of that style of music. Yeah, in fact, our, even our band members, we're really spread out in Northern California. Mm -hmm. um, you know, some people driving, you know, 100 miles to get to band rehearsal. We're kind of spread out. We're not located in one city. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Are there any uh, particular instances or events or ceremonies that the band has taken a part of or been involved with that you're particularly proud of? Yeah, I think one of our highlights was definitely in 2013, we went to the 150th anniversary of the Battle of Gettysburg. Oh, wow. And there was actually two different events that took place. One was a historically correct weekend, but it was on a big open field with, with spectators sitting in, in uh, bleachers. Hmm. And the other one was held a week prior to, and it was a reenactors reenactment. Hmm. There were 10,000 reenactors, all camped on the grounds in the pouring rain and, and mud, and it really wasn't a spectator event, but it was pretty amazing to see uh, 10,000 reenactors uh, reenact the Battle of Gettysburg. What uniforms did you guys wear for that one? Uh, we were Union. Yeah. Gotcha. Now, for someone like that, do you appear as a Union band and then you get assigned of where to be, or is it up to you guys where you're allowed to be if you're uh, choosing which side you're representing? How does that work out? Yeah, after we, we, yeah. we actually uh, uh, got permission from, I guess it would be the, the officers' quarters didn't camp by them you know the civil war bands were a big part of entertainment you know and uh oftentimes we they'd have the civil war band perform for the officers so we were encamped close to the officers quarters and i also know that you guys have released a cd titled the california grand march uh can you tell us a little bit about that album yeah um i wanted the band to to do a recording and then we had talked about you know different ways of doing it, but I, I, to be period correct, it was important to me to have it at Fort Point. So we actually did it at Fort Point in a 2020 cannon casement, brick cannon casement, which isn't an ideal uh, setting for recording, but for us, it was more important to be authentic of what someone may have heard, you know, mm -hmm. back in the day, if a band had, had performed there, compared to being in a, a studio where it's all cleaned up. Yeah, of course. When when was that album released? Off the top of my head, I believe it was 2010. 2010. Very cool. To your knowledge, do you know if a band ever did perform at that fort by any chance? No, unfortunately, the records um, for Fort Point got lost over the years. And uh, we, you know, bands did perform in the area, obviously, but we don't know if there was ever a band assigned to Fort Point. We also play on Alcatraz Island, and we've played over at Angel Island. Um, 
Is there still a fort established on Angel Island, or is that one gone? There's yeah, there there are. It is a historical park, and there are buildings there. I visited San Francisco for the first time three or four years ago, I guess, and we did the whole Alcatraz thing. Just even right off the bat, I didn't know a ton about Alcatraz going in. Um, so I was especially surprised to learn that, you know, it was initially, you know, before it was the prison, it was a, intended as a civil war for it. I even think I remember reading a year ago, I think, they just discovered a, a new set of tunnels underneath Alcatraz that were likely associated with the fort on the on the island so I, yeah i thought that that was all really interesting yeah one thing that's very interesting about it as when you're in a reenactor there the park rangers will take us on guided tours to the underground foundation the original foundation brick foundation of the, the civil war and something they don't allow the public to go to, go to for safety reasons mm -hmm. but um yeah it's really interesting down there are there any other events in addition to the album in Gettysburg that uh, you'd like to highlight as a part of the Fort Garrison Brass Band's history? Yeah, we do um, between six to ten gigs per year. Um, one of our annual gigs is up in Virginia City, Nevada. We do, uh, um, besides uh, reenactment on a train, there's a battle that takes place on a train. Wow. It's kind of interesting, but we also do a three-hour ball, which is fun. It's kind of challenging on E-flat cornet to perform for three hours. But Yeah, I'm sure. Are you still the only E-flat cornet, or do you have somebody to trade with now? Nope, I'm only E-flat. <laughs> so those are iron chops I see on this interview then. <laughs> I wish. I wish. Well, we're, we're looking for another E-flat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, for sure. Yeah. I know, man. Yeah, I always feel bad for our E-flat guys on the gigs that we have. We, uh... We played at a, a winery that's adjacent to the Manassas Battlefield now. It's called the Winery at Bull Run. And we play for their uh, Civil War weekend when they have it annually. And uh, well, when, he, when we did it this last year, I think it was like a five-hour gig. Not nonstop, but definitely with not as many breaks as we should have taken. And, yeah, I, I had to throw the our E-flat a little bit extra on that one was I felt really bad. <laughs> I was sitting on his face the whole time. <laughs> yeah. It's a lot of heavy lifting on that book. <laughs> yeah, sure. And then when you when you play a gig where you do, you know, sets and a break and a sets and a break, you, you feel good at the beginning of each set. And then it seems to, at least for me, it seems to deteriorate a little quicker, you know, yeah, as the it, day goes on within each set. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Exponential. One of the um, balls that we did in Virginia City, they always have a grand march in the beginning to start start the ball off. Mm -hmm. It lasted 27 minutes. Ooh, so yes. after our first tune, yeah, we were pretty shot. It was. Uh, oh man. In the future, you got to cut that back a little bit. Yeah. Yikes. <laughs> yeah. One point of interest uh, in regards to my background with the Civil War band is um, probably about eight years ago, I learned. From, from my mom that my great-great-grandfather was in a Civil War band. Hmm. Oh, wow. um, he actually, she actually went up and was visiting her cousin up in Washington, and they were going through family al albums and pulled out this photo of a Civil War band. And that photo is on my website, horncollector.com, and uh, my great-great-grandfather played uh, E-flat bass. He was enlisted on November 26th of 1861 and was discharged three years later in December 8th, 1864, uh, due to a gunshot wound in his right elbow. 
that he received at Cold Harbor. Oh, wow. That's strange that uh, as an E-flat tuba, E-flat bass, he received a gunshot wound. I guess they were uh, not necessarily manning the, the hospital, the aiding the surgeons at that point, I guess. Because I know that that's one of the more common duties that the musicians, the bands would have during the fighting. Yeah, the, the bands were highly prized and they usually kept them safe. But um, he also, um, in his pension papers, that we were able to uncover, he was um, came deaf in his left ear due to an explosion that, took, that was right next to him. Oh, wow! So he he saw some battle. Yeah, that'd be interesting to see if he served as a musician the entire time, or if he, you know, obviously has that picture of himself, but then got switched to infantry or something. Because it seems like if he was a a member of the band through all of that, that would put him up there with being one of the most uh or seeing some of the most action you know uh firsthand you know in in terms of a band member you know obviously we, we hear of like the the 26th north carolina playing on the second day of gettysburg and being you know on the battlefield for that and there's a few other instances but yeah getting becoming deaf and getting shot while being an e-flat bass player is is relatively rare from what i've experienced so far yeah, I'm not sure if he was in the band, you know, throughout, but family history says that uh, the, the photo was taken just prior to the cold, cold harbor. So um, now whether yeah. they played, maybe they, you know, they, they were running short of people fighting. So. Yeah, really. yeah, there's a story there for sure. It's really yeah. interesting. Very cool. Yeah. So I know you were saying that the, the guys that were a part of the reenactment organization wanted to form the band to add that element to their presentation into the, I guess we'll call it quote unquote, the hobby kind of thing. And then they brought you in to, you know, obviously get the instruments and to have some iron shops <laughs> on the, the E flat part. Um, but for you personally, would you say that your involvement with the band is what to, to perform the music, to get playtime on the instruments, to, uh, you know, all of the above, what, what would you say your driving force is in all of this? It's all of the above, you know, being in a band forces me to practice and especially playing E flat. Um, it makes me want to practice more, you know, on my horns, knowing that I'm going to stand out like a sore thumb if I don't play well. Mm -hmm. Um, so it, it, it's kind of, that's my motivational device is, you know, to, to help force me to practice. Mm -hmm. it's, it's easy not to practice when there's not any gigs or rehearsals coming up <laughs> yeah, right. yeah right now we're all kind of in that hole at the moment yeah. unfortunately <laughs> yeah <laughs> who knows what then when we come out of it then maybe it'll be be even more accurate to what it sounded like <laughs> when we all come back <laughs> yeah <laughs> who knows it's <laughs> funny so um you know kind of in line with that question and tying back a little bit to the american historical brass society um in terms of the ensembles that currently exist in terms of quantity, how do you feel the the community is kind of sitting as it is in terms of uh, both exposure to audiences? Uh, we already kind of touched on community within itself, but you know, that element of exposing the music to the audience, exposing the music to new generations of brass players to get involved with it. Do um, you have any thoughts on any any of those? I don't think it gets enough exposure. And a lot of it is because there are 
isn't a lot of opportunity for, for brass bands to play. I wish there were more. And that's kind of what I'm trying to do with the American Historical Brass Band Society is go out and contact cities directly mm-hmm. and try to get them, you know, if they have a 4th of July parade or if they're having some sort of celebration, you know, to bring in and uh, reenactment band you know, for entertainment and something unusual and different, you know, for, for the, that city's uh, celebration. For sure. And I, I, I don't feel like there's enough out there. Um, I, I wish there were more opportunities and more musicians wanting to do this. You know, I, I, I see that 1860s, 1870s, 1880s period as, as the golden era of brass bands. It's a part of history that has kind of gotten lost. You know, it'd be nice to pull back the covers and, showcase that error a little more do you think that that's mainly financial why that lack of exposure is happening or uh lack of knowledge that it even exists like where do you think that that hole is greatest i I think both you know i I don't think you know um the bands that i play in are volunteer bands you know i'm not a professional or paid musician you know and to get musicians to want to do that in the first place, play without getting paid. And then also, uh, you know, the venues that we play at, a lot of them don't have the funding to to help support or back. It'd be nice to find a grant somewhere to help support this cause. Yeah, and that idea of, um, you know, the time kind of in between the Civil War and and 1900 being kind of the golden age of of brass band, that's something we talked a lot about with um, Dr. Michael O'Connor in, I guess, that was episode five, you know, because that's kind of where his uh, musical professional reenacting life kind of sits with some of his groups. And yeah, I, I mean, I totally agree. I wish there were more opportunities to expose that history and that music because there's a lot of it there. Um, and, you know, because some people might be interested in it and not even know yet because they've never been exposed to it. So it's, it's really all about that exposure. Exactly. And it's something that we've mentioned you know, on a previous episode, I think, but our experience uh, having brought this musical ensemble to the university level and having undergraduate music students become exposed to this music, we uh, we ask them to if they're interested in being involved, they agree, expecting to come in playing just Yankee Doodle and Dixie and, you know, when Johnny comes marching home and then they're surprised to find, you know, like... A lot of these Grafula pieces or music like Thomas Coates, you know, just really heavy hitting brass band music that is really fun to play, entertaining to listen to and challenging to play. You know, it's it's a shock that for these undergraduates to, to know that that type of music even existed in that time period. So it's been really rewarding for Stephen and I to to kind of see that happening firsthand at the college level. That's great. Yeah, to hear yeah. that. Well, this has been a great conversation, very enlightening, and and I I learned a lot, especially about all the different horns um, that you have represented in your collection. So thanks for taking the time to talk to us. Where can people find out more about you, about your collection, and any any of the projects you have going on? Well, as I mentioned earlier, I buy, sell, trade on a regular basis. And so if some people want to see purchase those horns i've got a couple outlets to do that i do have a facebook marketplace called antique and vintage brass wind exchange 
someone needs to become a member of that. And uh, I haven't turned anybody down yet, so anybody can sign up for that. I also have a, a web store. Um, web store is, is like eBay. I have found that eBay is a great resource to find instruments, but it's not very seller friendly. Mm-hmm. And so over the years, I've, I, web store is just like eBay, but it's completely free. There are no fees at all. And so uh, I'm a horn collector one, the number one, at webstore.com. My instruments can be found there, besides the Facebook Marketplace, Antique and Vintage Press Wing Exchange. All right. Well, thank you so much, Eric. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us on the Saturday amidst the quarantine. And uh, yeah, we're looking forward to to keeping in touch and and helping keep and keep this community continuing to grow. Well, thank you for the opportunity. I also want to thank you for doing this project. I think it's uh, very enlightening for a lot of people and appreciate what you're doing. Yeah, for sure. Thank yeah, you. Thank you. Thank you again, Eric Totman, the Horn Collector, for coming on to the Early American Brass Band podcast. That was really, really interesting, really fun. Great time talking to him. Uh, Eric's a great guy. It was great to meet him and have the opportunity to to conduct this interview. Yeah. If you like what you're hearing, you can um, really help us out by going to Apple Podcasts and rating and reviewing the show and sharing it with anyone you think who might be interested. And if you're not an Apple Podcast user, don't fear. We're pretty much everywhere. We have a YouTube channel that we're going to start to bolster, hopefully, in the future with um, other other content other than the episodes. But the episodes are all up there now. We're on uh, Spotify. Uh, Google Podcasts, Google Play Music, pretty much anywhere you get shows, you can find us. And it really helps if you rate, review, and share. You can also find us online at eabbpodcast.com. And by the time this episode is out, there will be a resources tab on our website where you can find a list of current active bands, as well as a list of um, CD recordings and vinyl recordings of music of this time it's a very thorough list that chris mostly put together in fact i don't think i even touched it i just looked at it saw how (laughs) thorough it was and said yep looks good (laughs) so that'll be up there and we do hope you check that out and if you'd like to get in contact with us about anything uh related to the show the website anything anything you think we might find interesting our email address is eabb.podcast at gmail.com we're also on facebook instagram and twitter this episode's featured album is by the fort point garrison brass band the band that eric Tomlin was talking about over the course of this episode their album came out in 2010 and is titled the california grand march uh, as eric was kind of mentioning this album was actually recorded on the ground level the first floor of fort point that being one of the forts that was uh defending the San Francisco Bay. So this recording was made at that Civil War fort on period instruments by the Fort Point Garrison Brass Band and is uh, a great listen. So we hope that you go over to our show notes section of episode number seven and find information about this great album. 
Thanks for listening. Be sure to come back next week. We'll have an interview with Dr. Dennis Edelbrock, former trumpet in the United States Army Band Pershing's Own. He recorded an album with classical brass of uh, Civil War era music and also appeared in the movie Lincoln. Uh, So we think you'll really enjoy our conversation with him. And we'll talk to you on episode eight. See you then. Thank you. Thank you.